Welcome, everybody, to the 11th episode of The Psychologists Are In. I'm Maggie Lawson. And I'm Timothy Amundsen. And today we have an incredible episode for you guys. We are joined by executive producer Chris Henze. We love him so much. On this episode, we talk about season one, episode 10, From the Earth to Starbucks. And Chris shares some really fascinating stories, some stories from set, stories of his life, how he got involved with psych. It's, it's so much fun. Anyway, enjoy, guys. Hi. Hi, Tim. Hi, Maggie. How you doing, Tim? I'm really good, Maggie. I'm excited good. to talk about From the Earth to Starbucks. Yeah. Because it's, I was thinking when I was re-watching the episode last night, because it's the Psych Rewatch podcast. And it's Psych Rewatch. And we are and re-watching with all of you. Yeah. ish rewatcher podcast host now. And I was really struck by the, even the fact that Starbucks is in the title because Starbucks has been such a part of your and my friendship. And um, in our downtime, Max and I would often go to the Starbucks together and hang out. That was there's our one, thing. There's one particular spot in, um, in Vancouver, which is kind of right around the corner from where we always used to stay. It's on Roth Street where there's two Starbucks that were, are kitty corner to each other. So we'd have to be very specific about if we're meeting a Starbucks on. Going Which one, one way or the other. So there's, Starbucks yeah. and Thurlow. And Rob's, on Robson Street, there's... Robson and Thurlow, yeah. yeah. so Robson and Thurlow, if you're going, uh, sort of heading, what would that be, uh, north or south on on Robson. Is it north-south or is that east-west? No, that is north-south. Um, uh, there's one on either side of the street, so it picks up the, the foot traffic on either side. And Tim, do you know... Wait, was I watching this with you? No, I don't think so. Shrek... And I think it's Shrek 2. There's a joke. There's like this monster in the streets and uh, all of these people are hiding from the monster and they are in a Starbucks. And the monster goes into the Starbucks and they all start screaming and run across the street to the other Starbucks. I don't remember And I'm that. like, oh, this is totally, uh, has to be modeled after the Starbucks on Thurlow. And there's there's a, a, a one of my favorite pictures of you and I, Mags, being out on the town hanging out is is the day where I kind of sniped by a paparazzi and we were walking on Robson. We were coming back from Starbucks, that Kitty Corner Starbucks, mm-hmm. and having one of our I'm sure many deep uh, Maggie Tim conversations that we still have daily. And then one of our also, <laughs> my other favorite th- it's still still daily. Just we just don't. And then we're back in LA. Because they're everywhere. It was, it was always an easy place. Like, we go, hey, where are we going to meet? Let's meet at XYZ Starbucks. Starbucks. Yeah. Because you know it's yeah. going to be 10 minutes from our house, one of our houses. Yeah. And then one of our favorite things would be um, the the morning text of, I'm stopping at Starbucks. What do you want? Yep. Which we, after a while, got to the point where we knew exactly, um, you know, I think even with you, I'd be like, is it a black coffee or a red eye day? Like there were some right. days that maybe you weren't going to go as hardcore. Um, so we, we even knew our, um, or our hangover, um, hangover, uh, coffee days. Why would we ever have hangovers, Maggie? Oh no, just Just never. like last from this episode, I don't drink. Oh my God, how great. So for his list in this, in this, in this about, oh, wine, maybe at a wedding. Snifter, br- the occasional so snifter brandy. A good, a good single malt scotch. I love that scene so much when he, he lists his, all the things he doesn't drink. Yeah, maybe a little scotch. I, I was like, oh, this is when they started to pick up on uh, all of our uh, personal, life. yeah, mannerism, our per- personal life and uh, bringing it into our characters. 
Um, yeah, there were so many, I mean, I, I, this episode, I feel like, uh, was kind of a turning point in, in season one. And, uh, yeah, I feel like we were so, um, off and running. I mean, our friendship was kind of from day one anyway, but, uh, but I really, everyone, you can see how comfortable we, we are, are getting with each other. I think like comedy wise, joke wise, you know, um, yeah, me getting to have that f- scene with James really was like the first time we really had a nice uh, sort of non-comedic scene together. Yeah, like and and a real the fact that you're confiding in him, you know, when you're drunk, but still uh, there's a there's there is a little mutual something respect, uh, co- you know, trust, whatever and going you on really there. See O'Hara wanting to really help her friend and partner Laster. Yeah, when she realizes. She could get in huge trouble for helping Sean and Gus be the idiots that they are. It's so good, though. I feel like we, they, the, the Sean doing that for Lassiter makes Juliet see Sean in a different light. And um, we all, like, as the audience see him, um, there's a funny moment in the chief's office, too. I know we talked about the, uh, the, um, the fish, the fish. <laughs> but uh, when we're having a conversation, and I hold up my hand, and he slaps it, yeah, <laughs> which was a total Roday improv. I'm pretty sure there's a uh, blooper somewhere. He just every opportunity he could, he tried to crack us up and and make us lose it, which usually worked. Um, first in this episode, I noticed another first. What? Which was not it's when. Sean and Gus were walking out of the space center and Dulé reveals he got some digits. And Sean, <laughs> it was the very first, it was the very first, nice. Nice. It's nice. Which became That's right. We, a, we were all doing Borat behind season the scenes, one. Um, yeah. Favorite of all of us where James would just sort of go into Borat. Yep. All the Tomorrow, time. Our crew started I, I feel doing like it. we still do. Like it's such a default when we all get together. Do you know who I think that all originated from? Because he was our friend, and then he ended up doing an episode later. Was Michael Weston? It feels he, like a Weston thing. Yeah, it is a Michael Weston thing. Um, um, also, Tim, you uh, you had to get COVID tested last week uh, COVID because tested. you were doing. I was doing the television program. This is us, and yeah. I actually had to text Dan Fogelman to say, "Buddy, I mentioned this. Uh, I mentioned that I was on the show. Am I going to get fired, or should we cut it out?" And he's like, "No, go for it. I love it." Okay, great. That's good. Well, without giving away any spoilers, how did how did it go? It was a lovely day. I know you've had a really good time with all of them, and it's such a, been, a great support. They love group. you. That's awesome. And every time I, I would get to work on that show, I mean, because it's still, I mean, that was the really other than I think last year come home. It was really the first time I was back on a set since my injury. So each time's gotten a little bit better. And this time, I mean, the first time you saw me on this, I was I'm obviously playing a stroke. So survivor and it was all about him trying to walk it's it was, was really beautiful you're so good on there i remember all of us um pre-covid times uh coming over to your house to watch that episode with you it was such a special night um and i remember us texting right before you did you know your first day because you were saying that that it was like the first time you were um going on to a set that wasn't us, like our yeah, it wasn't my beloved whatever. psych family. I knew it was going to take care of me no matter what happened. So it was a little scary, but they're a really lovely group of people. And so I worked when I worked the other day. It was the first time I'd really done it without having to use my stick. I mean, I wasn't walking a lot, but 
it felt like a big sort of jump for the character. But like, I don't have to have the stick, this cane hanging onto it the whole time. And um, that's, that's, uh, well, that's all about you, Tim. No, thanks. Mike. You're a warrior and, um, incredible. Uh, and I love that they're writing all of that for you. We're, we're so, so thrilled to have Henzi on because, uh, while we didn't see him, you know, um, as much on, uh, what am I saying? Like an actor on screen. He's the guy behind the scenes, like taking he care of really the man behind the curtain, man behind the curtain. Exactly. Um, all right, Tim. Love you. Um, hey, Maggie, love you too. And when you all are watching, rewatching the episode, there's a scene where, um, when you come in and say they're ready, the press waiting for you outside for the, for the press conference. Yeah. And I improvised um, to James, how's the knot on my tie? And he goes, tight. Which actually, in looking back, the, t- the <laughs> knot was not tight. <laughs> Which is because, and I was very, I was always took great pride in my tie knots. Because I'm weird like that. But um, yeah, you're the reason an that particular day it wasn't tight is because um, our incredible sound department, Johnny and Carmen, Johnny Lava and Carmen. Johnny Lava. The Lavenders who um, I know listen to the show, started hiding my microphone in my knots. Oh, my gosh. And Carmen would always come in and start messing with my knot to, to make room for, to loosen it, to make room for a, a mic. Oh, my. So I then swear at her in a loving way. So that's why, the, that's why the knot is not super tight when you all see it. But that was one of my first improvs where I was like, I'm going to say, I'm because it was always sort of James. I was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a joke. You made it funny. I made it funny. And it made you made it funny. You improved a funny. It was great. I love that scene. I'm so proud of you. And I'm so proud of that moment um, when you, when I'm like, the press, the press are ready for you. It's very, you it's, so, it's very sweet. It's our episode. sweet, sweet side. Tim, how excited are we today to have Chris Henze here finally? <laughs> Don't answer that. Uh, this is going to sound really fun. Well, first off, Chris, if you have been listening, I hope you have been feeling all of the love that has been <laughs> thrown your way in your belief of Steve and the idea and putting everything together. And from the very, very, very beginning, like it's you, you were so instrumental and you remain this way. I mean, you've been on every I mean, these last the last movies you've been on with us every day, pretty much on set. You have been to all of our Comic Cons with us. You are uh, such a part of our our everyday psych um, family. And from the beginning, stuff I never even knew. It's been really, really. Um, uh, it warms my heart to hear all of the stories from how um, psych came together, and then also your involvement. I just have to say. Um, I was thinking back on watching Earth the Starbucks. My very first impression when I met you oh was boy. no, no, this is <laughs> gonna be really good. It's actually really good. And I think you'll appreciate it and no one's gonna be surprised. But like, he's such a good dresser. How did we all end up in this wardrobe in season one? <laughs> Have you been listening? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but listen, it's the first thing that strikes me every time I watch those old episodes. I was like, what is happening? Like, how did, yeah. I, how did I allow that to happen? Chris, I remember being in a wardrobe fitting with you early on in the pilot and you mentioning my sloped shoulders and how we needed to uh, put some shoulder pads in to, um, <laughs> because you used to work in, you worked in re- fashion retail, didn't you, at one time? 
I in college I worked at uh, Nordstrom uh, in the su- during the summers because I I grew up in San Diego and so there was like five different Nordstroms there and I would work at a different one every summer. You could always come back and you always make commission, so it was always better than an hourly job. And it was such a great company to work for. So yeah, I I did that and then. I'm sure we'll get into this because I'm sure this is going to be part of your question about me and Steve and mm-hmm. the genesis of all this. But of um, course. in college or after college, when I moved to L.A., um, I got a job at the polo store, Ralph Lauren store on Rodeo Drive um, in order to kind of just get to L.A. and and have a job. Um, and it was it was like November or something. And it was, uh, you know, Christmas season and. I was like, I can make commission there and I can make some money and I'll send out resumes and I'll get a job in the entertainment business. And so I moved up here um, by myself with, you know, a couple hundred bucks and stayed at a friend of the family's parents' house in what I thought was L.A. It turns out it was like Moore Park or something. It took me an <laughs> hour, hour and a half to get to work every day and then I would go to the polo store and uh, yeah, and yeah, very good discounts there because it's very expensive. But they they do they did give very good I'm discounts. I'm not surprised at all. I'm I mean I'm I'm this is all this is very impressive how you got here. But also I'm not surprised at all. You were you didn't know that story. First. Yeah, and I then did. One, and then one day I was there for like three or four weeks, and I was like, well, I'm not going to get stuck working retail forever. Like I've and I sent out a bunch of resume. I mean, you know, I was a kid and I was stupid and I was like sending my resume. You know, I've graduated, you know, with honors from UC Irvine and, uh, you know, and I would send it to like the human resources department at Universal Studios. Like it was just, I'm sure, just going into like file and nobody was calling. And so I was going to maybe move back to Orange County um, where I went to school, where Steve still was, or I was going to move back to San Diego and save up money and figure out how. And like that week that I was trying to figure out what I was going to do, I mm. started helping a guy um, buy clothes and his wife, and he was an older man, and he was very sweet, and his wife was very sweet, and we ended up, he came in to buy a sport coat, and he ended up buying, I sold him five suits or something, and he wow. was there for a couple of hours, and, you know, he asked me, like, how long have you worked here, and I kind of told him I just graduated school and was getting into the entertainment business, blah, 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 and that was it, and then I got a call from him at the store the next day. Um, and it was like, Chris, the phone's for you. I picked up, it was Chris and, uh, his secretary was like, um, one minute for Mr. Zifkin. And, um, as it turns out, he was the the CFO of William Morris agency. And he, um, and he said, you know, I wanted to call because my wife and I were talking on the way home and you're, you're a great salesman. And I came in to buy a coat and I ended up spending $5,000. And, you know, I don't know if you've ever thought of being an agent, but, you know, <laughs> I'm the CFO of William Morris. And if you wanted to come in and use my name as a reference. So, uh, so I said, you know, wow, yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't want to be an agent um, from what I knew of agents. It was, you know, it was all stereotypical stuff from the movies. And I was like, well, that's not what I want to do. I want to be creative. Um, but I was not stupid enough to say no. So I went and sat down with the human resources person who, you know, I was in a waiting room and they called my name and she didn't even look up. And then she opened up the file and she goes, 
oh, you're a friend of Mr. Zifkin's. And I was like, oh, yeah, Walt, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> a friend of Mr. Zifkin's. <laughs> wow. Uh, she's like, so Chris. what do you want to do here? And I was like, eh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> um, and I ended up taking a job as an assistant and saying no to the training program because I didn't want to go in. At the time, you had to go into the mail room and do all this stuff that I didn't really want to do because I didn't want to be an agent. I thought I wanted to be a producer. I, I didn't quite know what that meant yet, but that seemed like the perfect melding of business and creative. And um, and so I, 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 she said, you can start as an assistant, but you can never be an agent that way because you're not in the training program. And I go, well, I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to be an agent, <laughs> but I want to learn about the business. So I was there for um, a couple of years in a couple of different departments in lit uh, working with writers and directors. And I mean, when I say working with, I mean, I was a secretary. That's what you right. do. You, you know, right. the guy behind me was a lawyer. The guy behind him just graduated from Harvard. The girl behind him was like a, you know, JD MBA or something. It was crazy. But they didn't um, dress like you. Uh, no, no, who, nobody does. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so that, you know, that's the long answer to why um, I cared about having cool sneakers. I don't know. Well, so you and Steve met in college though. So Steve and I met in college in a intro to videography class or something of the sort. It was, um, we both, he was an English major. I was an economics and sociology major. And, um, for various reasons, because we, we both really liked the idea of entertainment in some capacity. I thought I wanted to go into the advertising business. Um, And as it turns out, I just was a huge fan of Tom Hanks and Nothing in Common and loved that movie. And the idea of being Tom Hanks in that movie, who was an ad guy, uh, seemed amazing to me. And and then I had an internship in in the ad business while I was in college. And then I kind of realized, oh, no, I, I think it was the movie that was appealing to me and the way that that creative force was displayed in the movie, which isn't quite like real life. And like, maybe it's the movie business that I'm interested in. Um, And that kind of started me on a quest to take some classes because um, this was uh, UC Irvine, which had, um, which still has an amazing fine arts program, but mostly theater and dance and, you know, and, and not so much, filmmaking, um, although they had a bunch of core filmmaking classes or videography and things like that. And they had a studio that was, all the equipment was donated to them by Sony, I think, like in, you know, 1970 or something. And so they had this big studio, bunch of equipment. And most of the people that were taking those classes were taking it for their GE requirements because they were dance majors, you know, or something. So um, Steve and I ended up in that class and we both were thought we were funny and we both (laughs) wanted to explore making short films and making movies and everybody else was kind of there to you know do these very self-important little video things or or just kind of check the breadth requirement off their list um so we became fast friends and started doing projects together and making little short films together and and it was the first time in my life where I just, I didn't need an alarm clock in the morning. I would just get up excited to go to the lab and continue making his short or my short or whatever it was. And we laughed a lot and had a great time doing it. And we would find ourselves not being very popular with the other students because we would typically 
make fun of their short films with our short films. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then at some point, as Steve often says, uh, the, the, the nice older man who ran the lab was sick of having us there and, and shutting down every night. So he just gave us the keys and he said, you guys just lock it up, you know, when you leave. And, and we would just stay in the, in the editing lab and, and this, um, the little soundstage there and we would make short films. Uh, that's it. And then a couple of them, we entered into some, you know, silly little local competitions and won a couple of comedy awards. And Steve went off to Loyola and I went off to uh, Hollywood. Wow. And then we came back around a couple of years later and um, Steve had written a script uh, as part of, I think, his curriculum um, at Loyola. And he said, I, I wrote a script, I had to write a script, take a look, and I read it. And it it was uh it it was Big Daddy, the Adam Sandler movie. Um literally, but it, it was called Guy Gets Kid and it was really <laughs> it was really funny and fun and smart and emotional and hilarious, as you can imagine, in Steve's voice. And um and at that point I had left just left William Morris and I said, I know enough about what's going on out there in the business to find an agent for you and we should take this out and we should try to sell it. Um, and we did. <laughs> so you were still at William Morris. I just when, left William Morris after three left. years. I, I'd been in lit and talent um, and knew that I I liked representation. I was good at it. Um, you, have a, you have clearly had that kind of sales side, but also you, you understand the creative, which is invaluable in representation. I feel like. Thank you. I, I mean, for me, I don't even think I'm like an amazing sales guy and there's people out there that are like, you know, they're fast and they're quick and they're smart and they'll sell you, you know, sell They'll sell you ice in Alaska. You know, I, I'm not that guy, but I, but I was always the guy that people that my friends came to and said, oh, dude, I, you know, I need to, I need to buy a suit. I've never bought a suit before. What do I do? Where do I go? Or I, I got to get a car. What car should I get? What should I, and for, for whatever reason, I paid attention to all these things. I liked style. I liked, you know, clothes. I, I, I liked things and I, you so a life coach as well. I guess that's that's what it that's what it was back in the day. But so and I really enjoyed it. You know, I would be like, look, dude, let's go shopping. Let's figure this out. Let's get, you know. And so I was I was always that guy. And you're like Ryan Gosling in Crazy Stupid Love when he's like <laughs> tasting yeah, Corral and he's like, let's go. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did have a knack for it. And um, I grew up with three sisters and I I I seem to particularly um be good with the actresses. I don't know why. And uh, maybe I just, you know, again, like not having brothers, but having sisters was more patient than the average dude. I have no idea. Um, I know. It's funny. I, you're, when I have glam or lighting questions, <laughs> I call NC. <laughs> but you get it. I, you do have a knack for it. Yeah. The new year is a great time to focus on what is important to you, whether it's saving money by ordering less takeout, learning to cook, or prioritizing your wellness. HelloFresh is here 
to help with endless options to make cooking at home simple and enjoyable. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week, so you get convenience without skipping on the quality. Skip the trip to the grocery store, saving you the wait in long holiday lines and ensuring you don't waste money on excess food. HelloFresh cuts back on time spent in the kitchen so you can spend it on your other resolutions with meals ready in around 30 minutes or less. And that's actually true. A lot of times it'll say, oh, this recipe, like if you're reading a recipe book, like this recipe, you know, it's 30 minutes and it's, it's never that. These actually are. Plus, they have quick and easy meals, including 20-minute recipes and low prep, easy cleanup options, provide an even faster route to putting food on the table. Don't forget dessert, you guys. Satisfy your sweet tooth with seasonal, limited-time goodies like Dunkaroos cookie dough or Vanilla Delight cheesecake. I, I know I've talked a lot about HelloFresh on this podcast. Tim loves it too. It really is this easy, and it really is this good. It shows up. The food is so fresh, It is, and it's all spelled out, which is what I need in a recipe. I like spell it out for me, make it super easy. It's down to the minute. Uh, what it says. So if it says 30 minutes, it really will just take 30 minutes. Um, I can't say enough about it. The food is so good. Um, did I mention Tim loves it too? Go to hellofresh.com slash pineapple16 and use code pineapple16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's hellofresh.com slash pineapple16 and use code pineapple16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That is such a good deal, you guys, and it is so worth it. Please try it. But I didn't want to be an agent. I spent enough time at, in, at that agency at that time in the world where it was still, there were still weird personalities there and abuses and it was it was just past the days of like you know hollywood bosses throwing chairs at people and stuff I was like gonna that ask, but, did you ever have but, a phone thrown at your head but not but i did not but not quite but a lot of yeah but a lot of like you know verbal abuse and a lot of banging on desks and you know just i just kind of looked around at one point and i thought to myself you know i i've put some time in here but do I really want to do this? Because I don't really want to be like any of the people that I see in this building, in those offices. Um, so, but I liked representation. And that's when it occurred to me that there was this small little faction of the business called management and production, where you could, you could manage people's careers and you could have a business where you operated like a representative or as a representative, but you weren't a you weren't a broker, you know, you didn't have 600 clients, which every agent did at William Morris at the time. Um, and they were overwhelmed. You had a group of people that you really cared about. And then you weren't stuck in television literary department or motion picture literary or motion picture talent department. You could kind of represent who you wanted as long as you were passionate about it and you could learn about different facets of the business and be involved in publicity and be involved in deal making and be involved in pitching and getting a job and strategizing a career and doing all these different things. And they were not bound by the Talent Agencies Act and a lot of managers were able to put things together and, um, and package ideas or shows or series or movies or whatever. And, and then they would get a production credit or a producer credit. So you, it was a way to be a producer and manage. So that was appealing to me. And I started, was able to start a little company, um, 
a couple years in, three years into my Hollywood career and was running a little business. And, uh, and that company was called? Well, that company was called Atlas Entertainment. But there's, really there's a different Atlas. Atlas Entertainment now, but you know. You know Cynthia, who I started that company with. Yeah, I, I didn't realize that you uh, started. You were one of the founders of Atlas. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so left there and did that for a few years, and um, and did exactly what that job was, and it was really fun. It was I was representing people and being their advocate, um, including Steve at the time, and that's kind of when he gave me the script, and we sold Big Daddy, and. Then we started talking about other movies and we started talking about TV shows and stuff like that. And um, and then at the same time, I was, you know, I was representing writers because I started Motion Picture Lit in at William Morris. And, um, and that was really fun for me in being able to care about the development process and then watch things get greenlit and turn into something that was actually getting made and be able to understand the process of casting it and making it was much more interesting than just selling, you know, 200 different widgets in one little finite division of the business. So um, that's kind of when it all started. And then I moved to a bigger company and then moved to, and then started my own company. And God, that's been 18 years now or something like that. Your own company being through line. line. Yeah. yeah. And then Kelly. And then, yeah. And then when, when we, a few years after starting Throughline, um, we uh, we were able to get some uh, financing and really wanted to make a go of starting a production company because my partners and I had all done what I was doing, which was we had produced a handful of things and just you know put things together. And if it made sense organically and we had found material or we had put the entities together and we were kind of shepherding the project, then we were producers on it. And we maintained our involvement and we helped keep things on track and it felt organic to the process of representation. So Throughline, for our audience members who produces our show, is a production company and management company, right? Correct. Correct. So um, we have, you know, sort of different, it's not really different divisions. It's not like, you know, one place down the hall. Everybody's kind of involved in doing various things. And we've we've tried to not have there's 20 something people there now and you know close to 15 executives um we try not to have like you know the literary guys in department and the talent guys like we all are interested in representing you know people that do both um and people that do one thing but then also representing actors as well it keeps us on our toes it keeps us like i said involved in the development process and the sales process and watching something come together and then casting it and it's more interesting um and you can stick with things and then you have people like many of the people on psych and our show that you know shouldn't just be defined by being an actor or an actress um, but you do, you know, who knew Maggie was as good at what she's doing right now as she is, you know, and it's just, a, <laughs> it's just a facet of, you know, being an interesting person, being talented at various things. And, you know, whether you're producing a play, writing something on the side, directing, um, or exploring any of those things, uh, it's, it, it's, um, it's something that a lot of artists do in this business. And, Having the ability to work with somebody and that's a successful 
actor and says, you know, I, but I, I don't want to just wait for the next thing. I want to, I read this book and I love it. And how do I get the rights to this book? And how do we, how do we help bring this book to the marketplace? And, and I get to stay involved and that's fun. It's like a puzzle to figure out. So it makes your career and your job interesting. Now, do you so, still have the circuits acts division at, at Throughline? Yes. <laughs> they do everything. Because I got some stuff I've been wanting to pitch you. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's certain things I just won't understand and um, I'll never, never be an expert at. The music business will be one of them. Circus acts will be another. Because <laughs> you haven't seen my Cobra act yet. But when you see it, you will totally understand it. So you you start this company. Steve comes over. I mean, Steve, obviously, you guys are our best friends. But but also, you know, he has Big Daddy. Big Daddy, we obviously know what happened with that. So you 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 were with him through that entire process, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. So I sold Big Daddy with uh, with an agency, and um, we sold it on spec. And and it's what's really fun about my job is that we had this piece of material and we sat down and we're like, look here. And, you know, the, this doesn't happen quite as much anymore, but it's a, it's a little bit different now. But what, you know, you used to do is you sit down with a piece of material and if you wanted to sell something on spec, which meant that it was already written, somebody wrote it in their house for no money and they said, I've got this piece of material. And you're like, it's good enough to sell. Um, we would take it out and you'd give it to different producers um, for their deals that they had at certain studios, right? So we you'd call sit these down pods, and right? you'd look at Sony, right? And then you'd look at all the producers that have deals at Sony. And some of them have produced, you know, Amityville horror and this horror movie and whatever. And you're like, well, okay, they're not totally right for this. And some of them had produced, you know, a Tommy Boy or whatever. And you're like, okay, here's a comedy producer at Sony. Here are the four comedy producers. Here's what I know about them. Here's what I know their reputation is like. Here's what I know about Steve. And here's what I know about the material. Here's what I know about the situation. And then you just try to use your instincts and your smarts to figure out who the right producer might be um, to actually have a chance at getting this made. And long story short, with that one, we ended up, you know, so you're giving it to a bunch of producers to take into their studios. But at Sony, we gave it to a guy named Sid Gannis, who had, it was um, a really, really wonderful, beloved guy who had been in marketing for years and years and years and then became an independent producer, a studio producer. And um, he was deeply, he was involved for years with the Academy and um, putting on the Academy Awards and producing that. And um, he had a lot of um, philanthropic uh, endeavors that he was, it, it, I knew a lot about him and I knew he was a great guy and I knew that his deal was relatively um, new and fresh. He had just moved from like the executive side to become a producer. So for us, we talked about how smart it would be to go to somebody who needs material, who wants to like jump off in this new adventure and and he's so beloved and he's got this new big deal and they haven't really spent a lot of money on him for him at the studio so we're like well that makes the most sense great guy he's going to treat us well um he means something to the studio he doesn't have fifty thousand projects he's trying to get made so we won't be in competition and so we gave it to sid and and that was exactly the right move and Sid was wonderful, and you know, within eighteen months, that movie was in production with Adam Sandler. Um, so it was that is 
wild. Yeah. And it hasn't happened since. I mean, it's like one of those things where it's, you know, like, like that Dulé is so was, hard to do. Like I mean, Dulé is, saying, you start off with the West Wing and you're like, okay, where's my <laughs> next, where's my next series for the next 10 years? You're like, okay, right. well, we're going to go sell a bunch more and get those made. And you realize how hard it is and how you, you caught lightning in a bottle. Um, and you know, it was enough lightning that Steve could quit his day job and, uh, and that we, and we we're off to the races. Do you mean the talk- one at Disneyland? That one, yeah. No, he <laughs> at was working at, at the time. He was working part time in Hollywood. He had, uh, and then I don't think he had quite moved up here yet. But he eventually moved in with me, and we were roommates. Um, and uh, I think well, maybe I was at William Morris when we were roommates. So, um, but yeah, he was working. He was working for a uh, MOW producer, like just mm. three days, couple days a week or something in her office. Uh, and just trying to kind of, you know, dip his toe into Hollywood and figure it all out. I wonder and, why he didn't tell us that story. Uh, <laughs> and then we sold the script and he was like, okay, I think I'm going to quit the job and I'm going to put together a bunch of ideas. And we made a blind deal at the studio after the script and we pitched some more ideas. We had a, uh, a blind deal for Steve at Sony as like part of his you know, deal on Big Daddy. Um, they were nice enough to say, we want your next idea. And so they, you know, guaranteed him a sum of money and said, now let's go find another idea with Sid, the same producer. So, so I just said to Steve, like, come up with 10 ideas, one-liners, and we'll just, you know, we'll go through them and we'll decide which is what, what we're going to pitch to Sid. And, and we did, and we pitched a bunch of things, and I can't remember what we ended up picking, but one of the things that they weren't interested in developing was this idea that it's like guy gets into some legal trouble and to get out of the trouble in the middle of the courtroom or the judge, he's like, well, I just, I, I'm psychic. I, I, and he fakes being a psychic. Um, and nobody can question that because it immediately splits the room in half and people go, Oh, don't mess with psychics. And they're, they're, they're the real deal. And the other half are like, that's bullshit. Um, so, you know, case dismissed. And, and that was, that was kind of the one liner. And so that stayed in the file folder at, at Steve's house for a while. And then it cut to a few years into me starting through line and now having more experience in the business and, uh, and all that we had gotten some financing and, um, and went out and hired Kelly who was leaving Fox. I think at the time she was an exec at Fox and she was looking to be, and she'd worked for David Letterman and, um, and she'd worked at the CW or the WB, whatever it was at the time. And so she had a lot of, ex- yes, she had a lot of experience as a buyer mostly. And then also as a producer with Letterman. Um, and I think she was looking for something where she could be more entrepreneurial and independent. And, um, we found out she was and sat down with her and heard great things and, and hired her to um, to come in and help us kind of put together, uh, you know, a, a real game plan and sell more things. Um, and so I introduced her to Steve and we set up a meeting and we all sat down and Steve pulled out his folder and we started going through things. And that was, you know, that was the idea that we we all kind of went, yeah, we, we like that idea. Kelly's like, yeah, I do like that idea. And I'm like, yeah, this could, I mean, that could be something. And um, so we started working on it and expanding it and kind of turning it into a pitch and then set up pitches and pitched it all over town. 
Um, and USA, we knew, was looking for something as they had been for a few years that was appropriate to pair with Monk, which was their kind of one uh, scripted hit. Um, they had uh, WWEF, and we ended up selling it there. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. We talk about BetterHelp a lot on the show, and this month we are discussing some of the stigmas around mental help. For example, some people think you should wait until things are unbearable to go to therapy, but that isn't true. Therapy is a tool to utilize before things get worse, and it can help you avoid those lows. Honestly, I I personally find therapy more helpful in the times when it's not crisis, even though obviously it's very helpful in a crisis, for exactly what I just said before about how you can prepare. You sort of get your – it's a tool to help you deal when those moments come up. I've actually been recommending BetterHelp to a lot of people because I think it's so easy to use. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, which I think is also really great. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy and why I'm recommending it to so many people. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and the psychologists are in listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash pineapple. That's betterhelp.com slash pineapple. You'll get 10% off. So good. I've heard the podcast, right? So I've I've heard Steve explain it and um and I've heard Dulé talk a little bit about it and uh, about USA giving us the freedom and the ability to let something breathe and it's true. Um, very thankful for our executives way back in the day, 15 years ago, to give us the freedom to um, let something breathe. But the truth of the matter is, is that, <laughs> and, and it's not to discredit them, they, they didn't have a full staff. Like they, you, you go to a network and they'd have like a dozen executives, right? And, and you go to USA and they had they had one show on the air that was a scripted hit show and they were dabbling, trying to find other things. And they had like a couple of executives. Um, and, and so we weren't bogged down with people trying to kind of like put their stamp on things and overdevelop and overnote and all that. And we had, you know, one or two people who really liked this idea and were, inexperienced at sort of all the bad parts of, you know, development hell when there's just too many cooks in the kitchen. And so to their credit, they all just kind of went, you wrote a great script. You gave us a good pitch. Go make your show. Um, Which, as we know, doesn't happen very (laughs) often anymore. And so we went and you know, they, what would happen to us today if we were that age and that inexperienced is that they would say, all right, we're going to, you guys are great. We're going to pair you up with a producer. And it's this guy who's producing something else for us and we're going to throw it his way. And then he's going to produce this thing and you guys can kind of be involved in whatever and Steve will write it. We'll see how it goes. But they didn't do that. They just said, okay, how do you guys want to do this? What do you want the show to look like? Um, 
had sat down with Mark Binky, who's who's still there, yeah. and and he was like, "Here's what the budget will look like. Um, we want you guys to fly up to Vancouver because we think it's a better place to make this. For you know, you might want to think about changing the location to like Seattle or something because it's Vancouver." And we're like, "No, but we're both Southern California boys. Like this was supposed to be." about a guy who could live anywhere he wants because he's kind of a freeloader and just goes job to job and he's got the best life. He's going to live at the beach. Like, um, so then we had to figure out how to make, you know, Vancouver look like Santa Barbara for a long time. Okay. On that point, why didn't we have Sean live in the Wienermobile in a RV park in Malibu like Rockford? You know, we should have because we certainly used Rockford files as a template for a long time. Well, we also saw that we we also had an experience with the Wienermobile. (laughs) Well, that's true. I don't (laughs) think at the time we probably could have, at least we didn't think we could have afforded the actual Wienermobile. Right. Uh, But, uh, but yeah, that, you know, that would have been fun. We could have, there's so many things we could have done. There's so many ways we could have gone. But we went the right way because we're still here. it, It finds itself. It finds itself. And and honestly, I know I'm talking so much. I could talk about this for hours because... Oh, you're... This is just the first time you're here. <laughs> this is like... Because, I, I mean, I haven't, I mean, I haven't even gotten to the process of, uh, you know, casting this and finding you guys. And if, if it weren't in the middle of COVID, and had I not just had COVID for the last week, um, I would have gone to my office and pulled out my my psych file, which I know I have in my <gasps> office in Beverly Hills, Andy. in my little casting sheet. I don't think I have the one that says Tim Amundsen, but I know for sure, and at some point I'm going to frame it for you, I have the one that says Maggie Lawson, and underneath the little note section, in my little hand, in my little 27-year-old handwriting, it just says, love her. Oh. <laughs> That's so sweet. And that's that's gonna make me cry, but you also, it's just like, we were all so, yeah, 27, like, you know, we, we, it's just such a wild thing to think back on now. And like you just said, how things have, have changed. I don't know that shows, I mean, actually, I, I don't, I don't really even think shows then had, you know, as you said, there's always like, we're going to pair you with this producer or this person has a pod. So blah, blah, blah. Like this, for, for it to be your baby with Steve and everything to be like, okay, guys, make your show, as you just said, is really unheard of and dreamy. But I do think that is where, you know, given your vision and everything you all put into it is where the magic, it was allowed to breathe. It was allowed to like find itself. Like there's magic in that. You know? Well, and that the, the breathing part again is um, again, I, I don't, I don't, I don't mean to de-emphasize, you know, the fact that there were executives that fought for us and believed in us, but you know, part of the breathing was the fact that we ended up on a cable channel that didn't have a ton of programming. So there wasn't a line of other pilots sitting behind us waiting for us to not do the right number 
and to just slot us in because we were too expensive. Let's try the next one. And that kind of ends up being the cycle with broadcast television because it's so expensive and your airtime is so valuable and your competitiveness is so important that you you can't. It's not really the fault of the people that run the networks that you you can't give something 25 episodes to see if it works and let it breathe. Like you got to give it three and and hope that your promo department and the creative of the show is enough to get people to show up. I, I hear you on that. I want to ask you so much. And I also want to talk about um, Starbucks. <laughs> earth to Starbucks. From the earth to the Starbucks. One of the only titles that actually gives you the answer to the mystery in the title. I've discovered. <gasps> You're right. We gave it away. Poisoning the coffee. Yeah. Oh, you never actually see a Starbucks cup in this episode. Yeah, we see a... A generic faux, coffee, a faux star, a faux Starbucks cup with red instead of green. Were we allowed to? Obviously, we were allowed to use Starbucks. That was a. I, I think we could reference it as a title, but got of course it. we would not be able to use the logos. Oh, that is um, so funny. But yeah, I have so much to talk about in that episode. I mean, that episode was. Um, there were so many firsts in that episode. I, I believe that's one of the things I wrote down. Yeah. Yeah. I believe it was the first um, jackal, the beginning of the jackal. We had not heard of the jackal. And it's so funny um, because, I mean, the jackal that plays out well, Act Natural, I do believe, uh, started in the episode before, but this is like the second episode where we use it again. I noticed the Act Natural. You're right, though. This this had so many firsts. The term um, nutshelling, I think, which we went on to use, you know, several times, was first used in this episode. That's some excellent nutshelling right there. I felt like on a personal level, from Henry to Lassiter to me working with the boys and having this like my, you know, uh, kind of an inside joke behind Lassiter's back or inside scoop behind Lassiter's back where we were sort of playing this thing with him. Um, Dulé and, and, you know, his love of the, of, of the solar system and the planets and space. It's the introduction to Pluto. Like, and that was improvised. I'm I'm apologizing for the tail that you'll sometimes see fly through my frame. Um, Never because apologize for the tail. It's a dog's tail, everyone, just so you know. Or it could be a monkey's tail. We're not Hi, sure. Hi, buddy. That reminds me of your Lucy. Um, Lucy. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's crazy. And, you know, the one thing that I was talking to, I was talking to Steve earlier today, and I, of course, just watched, rewatched the show, that episode last night. And, and I was like, you know, there's something about, that just wouldn't be allowed. We'd get too many notes. Like there'd be, um, there'd be too much pressure to cut this down. But if you remember the way that that show starts, the way that episode starts with Tamara Mello, who's a lovely actress, who She's he, so great. Who, who James James Sean goes on a date with, and you're in, you're, you're in bar. season one, episode ten. You're ten episodes in. But we, Steve, all of us, took maybe 10 minutes to fashion a complete scene with a guest actress who never shows up again after that scene. And the scene is him going on a blind date, thinking he's going to get lucky or whatever it is. And then it features 
a bunch of stuff. It features the fact that he does what he does and he's got this magic that nobody else has. So we're still reinforcing sort of what the premise and the magic of the show is and why this character is special. He notices the necklace on her. He notices the phone that she, the, the, the phone call she ignores. He notices all these things that people would notice and he starts to put something together. And then what he puts together is the fact that she misunderstands her relationship with her boyfriend and he helps her and he does the right thing. And he's a good guy. And he's and he saves a relationship from, from imploding. And he's like, here's what you need to do. Go call him. You know, and it's such a great moment to it's a sneaky little moment to say, hey, we're we're early in the exploration of our lead character, but here's what you need to know about him. Mm. He notices all this stuff. He's not like you and me. And by the way, he's a good dude. Like, you know, and all of that was accomplished with humor and jokes and clever moments and everything else. And then the reason he's really there in the bar is to see Lassiter and to see that Lassie is there drunk. And that starts the whole episodic story. That starts the mystery. So I think today there'd be so much pressure to like, get to the story, get to the mystery, we don't care about this character. We're never going to see her again. Like, if he's there to meet Lassie, why do you even need that? Just have him come in and meet Lassie and get going and let, let's cut for time. Right. And then that Lassie thing becomes this foreshadowing of what the carlton Sean relationship could be it's, down many it's seasons the, later. It's the first, I think, it's it's one of the first moments where he he then helps his you know nemesis at the department where he's like, we got to help this guy. Um, so again, he's a good character. He's a good person doing good things, but I was just so blown away cause I'd forgotten all about it and it never really, probably never really registered until I went back and watched it, that it was such smart work, uh, you know, not by me, but, but <laughs> it was such smart work, particularly by Steve yeah, you. and the director and, uh, you know, uh, who directed Zinberg, that? Michael Zinberg. Zinberg. Mm-hmm. So it was just so smart to take the time to do that for our character before he goes into the Lassiter story and then, and then you know, does the same thing for Lassiter. But, you know, we, we were going to have a long time to explore that relationship. Um, and then it's just so genius that then you get into the Lassiter story and it's compelling and you realize that he's drunk and you realize that he's got problems at home and you realize that he's struggling with a case and you get all this information and you start to get into the case and that scene goes on for like five minutes and you're ready to roll. And then all of a sudden you've forgotten about the girl and you hear, I'm engaged! <laughs> <laughs> and it brings you back and buttons the scene. And it was just like, it's so good. It's so good. It's so good. And also, I I think you, you were just hitting it too about, um, and Sean being a good guy. If you think about it, this entire episode, in a lot of ways, is, is a selfless, you know, he's not really getting Sean. Um, this is for Lassiter. He's out yeah. here yeah. solving this. He's leading me on a, you know, he's giving me clues to get to Tim, you know, or to get to, to Lassie. Um, and so if you even pass the opening scene, almost the entire episode is about him. It's a bit, that's a really big deal. And I still love, oh, I love that, like the childish, like his dad 
being on a date and he reverts to being like uh, a little, uh, like a 12 year old, you know, mad kid who is confused right. and like, he can't help himself because he's having all these feelings. It's like all of that in, in a matter of a few scenes. It's really, uh, right. it's and a by the really way, good episode. Uh, Maggie, yeah. who, and who would have thought that in psych, the movie three, yeah, we would be calling, say, the, um, calling back that moment where he's at the door of his there? dad's house going, do you have a woman in there? Yes. <laughs> Isn't that like, wild? I, it's, yeah. It's funny too. You were just mentioning how like we almost had a, uh, this opening into, um, him being a good guy, but also personal. Like we get to know Lassiter, like you said here in the beginning and what's going on with him and having some like compassion for what's going on in his world. Um, and honestly, one of the things just to mention this about psych three, the movie, um, is I, that I loved about it was that in a lot of ways, while we know our characters and we know, you know, our, the personal lives of our characters now, um, having a personal way into the case rather than it just sort of opening with the case and that sort of driving the story, which I, I thought, um, I've called psych three, like grown up psych or like we're growing up uh, a little bit, uh, as you've probably heard a lot on this podcast, but, um, uh, we did that. I feel like we did that really well in psych three, but also watching back earth to Starbucks. I kind of forgot this was a really important episode. I feel like for this reason, on on the uh, friendship level, on getting to know Lassiter, and um, you know uh, the beginning of of getting into everyone's quirks, Dulé's love of space, and um, uh, James's ridiculous run. It's the first time you see the, the butt kick run. There's, there's, there's so many, I was saying that to Steve too. I was like, there's so many little things because the moment you appreciate that the scenes were well-crafted or something was well-written or something was well-performed by the actors that existed, you can also see those little moments. And it's most obvious with James because he got to do it so much and he's, got more screen time than most anybody else but you all did this and and you continued to do it more and more throughout the series as we gave you opportunities and freedoms and more episodes to play but there's those moments that are clear to me at least because you're all like family and I know your faces so well that I know even if I don't remember weren't on the page mm. and were those magical moments when James picks up the glass fish and just oh. takes it aside and goes, do you like this? It was, it was a gift from a friend, glass blower, you know, and then sets it aside. <laughs> um, that wasn't on the page. It was all James. And he's just constantly doing that stuff. And I, I mean, I don't know what, why he decided he was going to run like that, like, and <laughs> kick his own butt when he runs, like, but it's just so funny. Um and and you guys just all sort of found these quirks and things and moments and and the trick for us, as you like to talk about how much we hated the, 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 the <laughs> boys <scream>. whining. <laughs> um, the trick for us was always finding the balance because we always wanted to make Fletch. Like Steve and I grew up with Fletch. We were getting in trouble in our directing for the stage class at UC Irvine for doing scenes from Fletch, no joke, as opposed to everybody else who was, who was doing, you know, these very important theater pieces. Wow. Um, so we always wanted to make Fletch and, and get smart 
you know, um, that was that was always the tone we were going for. And of course, we were at a network that they the only thing they understood really in terms of tone and what they wanted to make sure we weren't going off the rails too much from was Monk, which was very funny and a great show, but not not nearly as ridiculous as you know as as we got um, pretty often. So it was right. always about like. Oh gosh, are they going to understand this? Are we gone too far? Are we being too silly? Um, I thought it was like we were just having so much fun. I I can't even imagine what the day what like the dailies like that the network must have been getting. You guys must have been getting, and you and Steve. I can only imagine had so many times to be like, "Oh my God, this is funny," but like, is anyone gonna allow this? Like the whining, you know, their 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 screams and the whining and all of that. So it's right. like, man, you guys let us do whatever we wanted, but also probably had to smooth over a lot of stuff on that end. And then I would also imagine, I mean, season one, it was just we. You guys let us play. We we just had so much fun and we were having so much fun in the off time and that I'm almost wondering if that was more like just make sure <laughs> they're not getting too carried away even offset just because I that's I that's what I thought when I was like oh they brought somebody up to babysit us because we're, we're having too much fun <laughs> you hit the nail on the head would talk about these sort of character points that developed is because you you said the word opportunity you gave us the all the opportunity to kind of figure out what we were doing what we wanted to do and who these we wanted these people to be after a long day i just want to curl up on the couch and get lost in a gripping story with characters i can love and hate is that too much to ask nope thanks to sundance now i always have something to watch that is binge worthy and that i can be obsessed with I love obsessing about my shows. Sundance Now is an ad-free streaming service created by AMC Networks for people who obsess over riveting storytelling and fresh perspectives. Sundance Now has original prestige dramas, international thrillers, and bone-chilling true crime shows. Every show is a sleek production with sexy lead characters. They've got shows like the hit British series, A Discovery of Witches. I love this one. It is the perfect mix of period drama, romance, and like edge of your seat thriller. Seasons one and two are streaming now. And season three, which is the final season, is streaming uh, January 8th. So it's already streaming. Um, Guys, go binge seasons one and two. The show is so very cool. Um, It is a blend of everything I said before. And they're sort of wrapping up some of the big stories from one and two. So, So everybody check it out. You guys can stream Sundance Now on all your favorite devices for as low as $4.99 a month. Just download the app or watch online and discover exclusive shows from around the world instantly. I found my next TV obsession on Sundance Now, and you will too. Try Sundance Now free for 30 days by going to SundanceNow.com and use promo code PINEAPPLE. That's SundanceNow.com code PINEAPPLE for 30 days of free streaming. SundanceNow.com code PINEAPPLE. Well, listen, that's 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 what's interesting about having the perspective of somebody who's also represented actors and continues to represent actors is that you I've heard a million times, you know, from people that are clients of our companies, their mind, like you get on a series and, you know, so much of the series is 
repetitive. And, and Dulé talked about this too, where it's like you 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 want to hit the same beats over and over again because uh, uh, it takes a while for an audience to catch on, and they have to understand the surface level of all the characters, and they have to understand the theme of the of the show, and then you just they need to understand all the obvious stuff to want to come back to it. And you go, oh, that's the bad guy, and that's the good guy, and that's the thing. And then you can start to play. And so, you know, I, so many conversations have been had where I'm like talking to a frustrated actor or an actress about like, ah, my character's not going anywhere, and I'm not, you know, and it's natural because you're doing the same thing over and over again, maybe for a season, maybe, you know, whatever, more. And... It's hard, but it's true. Having now lived through it from the other side, you you have to say, be patient. Because if the show doesn't work, you may never get those opportunities to explore and do those other things with your character. It just won't. Because you have to understand the mechanics of the commerciality of this business is that they have to make the show work. They have to make people want to watch it. And the the, the priority isn't to make sure that you're happy with the development of your character right now. Once the show works, hopefully we can implore them all and and they'll want to anyway, explore sort of the other layers of those characters and let some stuff out from mm. under the peel and let them get dark or let them get interesting or ridiculous or whatever it is. But like we wouldn't, we wouldn't know most of the stuff about Lassiter um, or certainly Juliet. Um, or any of those characters had we not been given 130 episodes, 123 episodes to explore them. Yeah. You know, it's like, then we go, well, let's let's have Lasseter do this. Well, Tim sings and Tim dances. Let's do a, let's do a tap dance episode and let, let's, let the, let's do a musical episode. And once we know all these things that you guys can play with, like, then we go, well, let's do that. And it extends all the way to directing, like, it's like Kirsten direct an episode. Look at she wants this. She's smart. She knows it. She's like being able to give those opportunities to people and have them expand their art form and not hate their job because they get to do other stuff. It's a it's a amazing. And it's not it's not a I don't look at it as, as a gift that we've given to you or Kirsten or or Jennifer Lynch or anybody that that we supported. It, it it was a gift that was given to us by our fans and a network that understood that, that something was working and they were making money and the fans were coming and it gave us more episodes. And giving us more episodes gave us opportunity to go, well, what can we do now? Well, you know, we've got a bunch of reliable people on this show that do more than one thing. Let's let them show off. Um, that That's... You know, that's a blessing that was given to us. We didn't really give it to you guys. I don't know. I think you all gave us a lot. I'm <laughs> well, sorry. I'm going to Well, you, or, know, you know, like Steve. You, and you steered talk the about, ship. You talk about Steve's generosity. I mean, it's it, Steve didn't make the decision to be generous and, and let people sort of be the captain of their own episodes in the writer's room. It's just who he is, you know, um, first of all. And... And you can't change that. And it's his instinct is to is to say, you're funny for a reason. Like, go be funny and I'm supportive. Like, that's just who he is. Um, so, you know, everybody was blessed with that and everybody got opportunity because of it. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people that could have stopped the progress of that. There's a lot of people that could have said, this show's too goofy and needs to be 
more like Monk or it needs to be more like the mentalist now or whatever. <laughs> um, right. And, and they didn't. And when they made small suggestions that felt like they were taking the fun away, we had enough leverage in our success to say, man, we're going to leave that in. <laughs> it works. Yeah. And we had a guy at the time that was running the network, Jeff Wachtel, oh, who repeatedly said things like, I don't get it, but it's funny and it works and everybody, everybody <laughs> in my department loves it. I don't mean the show in general. I mean, you know, a specific right. episode or a specific thing. You know, I remember when James didn't want to have any score in his episode that he directed in um, the found footage episode. Oh, and, right. Yeah. And we're like, we can't do that. That it's going to feel weird. It's going to feel like, I don't know, it's going to feel awkward. And yeah. James was like adamant about it. He's like, it's found footage. Like, we're not doing a score. And we were we were worried that the network was going to freak or that it was deviating a little bit too far. And that like, so we're trying to manage it. And James, to his credit, picked up the phone and just went around everybody and called Wachtel and said, here's the issue. Here's what I want. And Jeff Wachtel was like, okay, do it with mm-hmm. no score. Oh, I get chills when I hear these stories. It's just it's it's everybody for whatever reason allowing something to breathe, allowing us to take chances, allowing, you know, a, a couple of, you know, college buddies who had no experience to just here's the money, here's the checkbook, here's a really good line producer, here's a really good, you know, uh, executive on the production side. They're going to make sure that you guys don't go off a cliff. Um, tell them what you want to do and go do it. And, you know, you know, we always talk we about it. lightning in a bottle and because I'm an actor, so it's all about me. I always think that phrase we're always referring to the cast, which there is something to be said for, but it really, this lightning was lightning in a bottle with the entire group of people involved. Yeah. Including, you know, a big group of people in Canada that, um, I think found, a, found their family, you know, found something yeah. to, I mean, because let's face it, like, look at the stuff that was going on in Canada. Like, if you were a crew member up there and you got to work on a show with, you know, James and Dulé and you guys and Kirsten and and Corbin and people that are all generally kind individuals with not a lot of baggage that wanted to be there. Like, it's just that's lightning in a bottle. And it creates an environment and to have the two guys at the top that were on set every day and both good, protective men who wanted to, I mean, they could have been women, I don't mean men, but they were men, not boys. And they were protective, (gasps) they were protective of everybody on that cast and crew and they led by example, you know, and to be a crew member up there and get to laugh all day and then be in an environment where the cast is a family and wonderful and protective of each other and protective of you. I did want to shout out um, Michael McMurray too, as I've noticed um, over the course of this first season, because I know there was like a hiatus and we came back and, and things do look a little sharper and a little, you know, but he, you know, in creating that sunny show, I mean, we were in a in a very rainy place and, <laughs> you know, and I, 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 and we love Scott. We've had Scott now for, you know, the movies and years and years and years. But, you know, when we started off this like joyous, sunny, 
um, talented, you know, guy helped. I, 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 when his name popped up, I was like, oh, right. Yeah. Our, he was our delightful director of photography, everyone. D- director of photography. Yeah. And he, he was in charge. He, you know, director of photography, they do all of the lighting and sort of create that feel. And, uh, and he really, uh, that was a huge part of it. That warmth. Yeah. 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 And shooting on super 16, our first <laughs> season. Wow, sorry, but yeah, like it's film that's this right, big. It's like right. it's not like we really you know, did we, have we, to check the gate. We didn't, yes, we didn't have <laughs> we didn't have HD camera. I remember this the season where we had to make a big play to you know switch over to in HD. HD cam because all the other shows were doing it and we were still shooting on right on, you know, small film. Um, but yeah, and that's probably, by the way, where the you know yellow t-shirts and purple dress <laughs> dress shirts came hey, from. Is that this like ability them. to <laughs> this this grabbing at anything that brightens right. up the gray sky and pretending like it's Southern California. I uh, we have fan questions about this episode that I want to okay. um, bring us over to here. Okay, first one is <laughs> the question is why did James run like that? Because <laughs> he's James, <laughs> I don't know. Because uh, he just can't. Anyone not have an answer? Run like that. I, I, I mean, I don't know the answer. We'd have to ask James. But yeah. I guess is that James doesn't know either. And in my history of um, professional relationship and friendship with James, um, and yours goes even deeper. Mm. I, I think I think it's safe to say that he was probably bored and and wanted to find something to amuse either himself or one of you. <laughs> exactly. Or, and said, I'm going to just do a take where I do this. And people and laughed on the crew it. and gave him, yeah, it gave him the strength to continue to do it. And then, you know, we, we kept it, we kept it in because it made us laugh. Yep. There were lots of those. Um, <laughs> was the, uh, you heard about Pluto line improvised. Do you know if that was written, Chris? It feels improvised. Steve could probably answer that. Okay. And even if it was improvised, Steve will probably say, oh, no, no, I wrote that. <laughs> I, I said, by the way, I said that, what I just said, just to see if Steve listens to this entire podcast and calls me out on it later. Good. Did you listen to his entire podcast? Uh, almost. All right. We'll see if he gets here. I just heard all the stories so many times before. Of course. I, I, you know, it's hard. You, you guys know yeah. each other. Um, <laughs> if you discovered a planet, what would you name it? Whoa, this one's really hard. <sighs> well, Uranus is taken, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. We're all still 12. Yeah. Or six. <laughs> I don't think we're going to top that. So I'm going to go to the next one. <laughs> uh, oh, was Starbucks a sponsorship? I kind of asked that. Like, <laughs> were they? I, we didn't. Ha- I mean. No, only only mentioned in the title. Only mentioned in the title. It did get really interesting, though, in the later seasons when we would get like the tiniest of checks to completely rearrange our entire lives and episodes to get a Dunkin' Donuts shout wow. out in or you know a toilet Something. or whatever it was that became I strange think i remember that i remember yeah. a samsung situation i think at one point well, and last year drove um, a ford fusion which we did and, whole and somehow right. like dule would be the guy that would always end up with like a free laptop computer and we'd be like <laughs> wait what it, how he's very happen? good at that he's very good at that <laughs> dule knows how to work it 
where were the planetarium scenes filmed? Oh yeah, that was in Kitts Beach, right? At that center? Yeah, that's in Kitts. That was right around the corner. I used to take my kids there all the time when, when cause we lived right around the corner from there. It's by UBC and it's pretty close to that Molson factory where people will will recognize that, the Molson factory from, uh, or the abandoned Molson factory from Psych, the movie three. Uh, but yeah, right over, oh, right right. over there. Right next it's to the Maritime Museum. Steve, Steve reminded me that he wrote that episode because um, in the effort to stay out of the rain, he would find places while he was up there to write. And one of those places, or he would he had an annual pass to the planetarium because um, our kids would come up and they were like little wee children at the time. And so he had annual passes to the Science Center and the planetarium and, aquarium. Uh, and, and, and the aquarium, which became an episode and... Um, that's how these places became episodes because, you know, we just discovered the city. How do we not and, have a Joey's episode? Yeah. Well, <laughs> good question. That was filmed. A good question. We had many uh, Joey's episodes, Maggie. But yeah, it's just like, another you know, one on film. And you do enough episodes and we're like, what haven't we used? And Steve right. used to, I don't know, Steve used to say that all the time. He's, he would He'd say that to our location manager. He'd go, if you see any really great locations, no matter what it is, just bring it to my attention because maybe it'll inspire an episode. And that location manager saw the the crab sculpture slash fountain and went, they've got to do something here. i got to take a picture of this and show these guys. <laughs> <laughs> Steve was telling me that. Steve was telling me that today. He goes, that thing was the bane of our existence, right? Because it would it would go on, it would go off, it would make noise, it would ruin the sound, it wouldn't. And, it, and so obviously it's an improv. There's an improv in that when Sean comes out and James says something like, they're like, what are you doing out here? And he's like, I was just out checking the, I was just out checking the timers on the, uh, on the, on <laughs> the, the crab, crab on the crab squirt or something. Oh my God. That's so good. Uh, okay. How much of Sean's presentation scene, how much of it was scripted? Probably um, most. Oh, when he's in the talking about the, the planetarium. I've had that I've had that conversation with Steve recently, as recent as today, in fact. Um, because I asked him who came up with um <laughs> what was the the infinitum. The, the infinitum octopusium or whatever it was. And I said, that sounds like Berman to me. And I was like, and the hammer of Jeff sounds like you, Steve. It's, that, that sounds like you. And he goes, he goes, hammer of Jeff definitely was me. He was like, that was for Wachtell. And then I realized maybe it was a Bonnie Hammer, Jeff Wachtell thing. Oh. Um, he said that originally he had some like five minute, five page scripted thing in there. It just got more and more ridiculous and we just used the, the funniest mm. moments of it. That makes sense. I, um, uh, oh yeah, what was it like <laughs> working with Richard Kind? He was so great. He's sweet. He's a sweet guy. So sweet. As he's, he's what James would refer to as a journeyman. He is a, a journeyman. journeyman. A journeyman. Um, yeah, he was, he was awesome and really sweet and funny and, uh, and it's on Curb Your Enthusiasm this this season, and I think other seasons. Yeah. Um, what are your? We've actually talked about this before, uh, Tim. But um, what are your Starbucks orders? Oh, mine. Well, I've got a hot order and a cold order. What are we want both? My hot order is um, uh, a flat white with one raw sugar, 
A flat white? What's that? It's basically a cappuccino with not too much foam. It's somewhere between a latte and a cappuccino. Oh. Um, and it's just made in a certain way where it's got like a little spot of cream on top or the milk is on top. Um, but what I usually get, because I started drinking iced teas so long ago instead of iced coffees, mm. uh, is a uh, Fenty black iced tea, um, no water, which means don't water it down with more water. No, so you a, want it straight. A strong, a strong, strong Venti iced black tea. I like it. And Tim? For, fif- for 15 years. Uh, when we were working on the show, it was a red eye. Uh, These the days, eye. it's just a, a pike place. Love I'm a grande it. soy matcha latte. You're, are you still the the, uh, the soy or do you just go non-fat? I can't remember which. It's been so I'm long soy. So I'm together. soy now or almond. I go, oh, oat. But I did like you, too. B- before, I mean, there was a time when Starbucks didn't know what soy and matcha. No. That didn't exist. I remember being in Tokyo once. And going to a Starbucks there, and they had a green drink, and I was like, I was taking <gasps> pictures of it, and I was like sending it back home, going, "Oh my god, this is so disgusting! They have like this green tea latte here in Japan because they drink so much green tea," and then it became a whole thing for us. That's so funny. I years before I'm going to sound the same. I had uh, I only spent a little time. I was actually on a trip in China. And I went over to um, Japan. I think I was there for like four days. And I witnessed the whole matcha ceremony, which I just thought was, you know, I think Mr. Miyagi does it in, um, (laughs) in, no, I had seen it before in a movie. And I witnessed, it is such a beautiful art. And I was like, oh, this is is the matcha, the green tea. And I, I remember drinking it, it's really bitter. Um, and so years later, my little American self was very much like, oh, with milk? Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, they're going to make it palatable for me. And <laughs> yeah. lots of sugar, please. Yeah. Um, That's like Steve. Steve's, uh, I'm telling tales out of school now. Steve's, oh. I know Steve's order. That's, uh, that's how, that's how close we are. His Starbucks order is the, is the Vinti iced black tea with three Splendas. Oh, Splendas. Yeah. <laughs> Chris, I feel like we're just like scratching the surface. I want we you are. to, I want, we want you back all, all the time. And, and by the way, let us know your like favorite episodes or your most memorable and we'll, we'll plug you in. And your favorite thing about each of us for when you come back, just make well, a list. Yeah. Find that folder. Yeah. There's a folder. There's definitely a folder for that. <laughs> there's a folder for that. Um, um, I'm just glad that you uh, are in my life and have been in my life for a long time, and uh, we're thankful. It doesn't it doesn't always happen in this business the way it did for us, and um, and everybody should feel it. We love you too, and thank you for supporting us, and thank you for supporting the podcast as well. I know you have been a big supporter just from the beginning of it even being mentioned. So. We really appreciate that. It's awesome that you're doing it and you guys are doing it so well. Love, love. See you, Chris. Bye-bye. Feel better. Thank you for all of this. Thank you so much. What an amazing episode. We have to have Chris back for sure. He has so many amazing stories to tell. This is just the beginning. Thank you guys again for listening to episode 11 of The Psychologists Are In. Follow us on our Instagram at The Psychologists Are In and our Twitter at Psychologist Pod. All right, you guys, talk to you next week.
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.